Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency in 2017. I'm Freddie Gray and I'm Deputy Editor of The Spectator. I'm delighted to be joined today by David Frum, who is Senior Editor at The Atlantic and a very influential commentator on American politics today. And we're going to be discussing the dangers of a Trump presidency and the future of America. David, I saw you said on Twitter yesterday that Trump is like a magic mirror in a fairy tale and that when you look at it, it reveals who you really are. And at the risk of being too personal, I thought I'd start by asking you, when you look at the Donald Trump magic mirror, who do you think you are? Well, it doesn't matter who I think I am. It matters what others think I am. But what we've all discovered from this is what really matters to us. Many of my friends on the conservative side have discovered that bothering liberals matters to them more than holding together the Western alliance, preserving the institutions of American democracy, and preserving the integrity of American government against corruption. And while under most circumstances, I too would have been happy to see the entitled candidate Hillary Clinton lose on election night, what the price of that defeat is so serious, Mm. not just for the present generation of Americans, but for the future, and not just for Americans, but for the world, that bothering liberals seems like a very small, puny, and actually rather tawdry pleasure in comparison. Yes. I suppose what I was getting at is that on the left and the centre-right, whatever terms are right, there seems to be a sort of call for resistance. And I think you've made this call yourself. And it's an understanding. I don't use that language because I I think it it borrows a lot of moral prestige from people who paid, who risked much more than we are called on to do. This is not an authoritarian regime yet. It's heading toward repre- what I call repressive kleptocracy. But no one's life or liberty is in danger. So don't compare yourself to people who faced regimes that killed people. That's, that's self-aggrandizing and self-congratulatory. In fact, one of the things that is uh, so frustrating about what the situation in the United States now is that what, is, what people are called upon to do is so little and so easy. Yes. And so comparatively risk-free. I mean, it might hurt your business a little bit. Yes. You have no excuse for not doing it. And yet people not only are not doing it, but many people, including many of my friends, are empowering somebody they know to be unfit for this job. I've called on Twitter. I got a little blowback for this, but I stand by it. Donald Trump, the worst human being to enter the presidency in the history of the office, including all the slaveholders. Yeah. (laughs) And that seemed to me just to be a matter of. You know, and that's not a flip comment. I mean, I will go president by president and show you redeeming qualities. And even, you know, James Buchanan, even, you know, Thomas Jefferson. Okay, so he he was very sexually abusive of the slaves in his control. But there are some offsetting points of virtue in Thomas Jefferson. Franklin Pierce. Yes, he was he was he was drunk, but he did serve in battle. Andrew Jackson was was a cruel, cruel man, guilty of terrible policies. Mm. He was very physically brave. (laughs) <laughs> I, I could come up with, never mind me, at the Republican convention in Cleveland, Donald Trump's children could not come up with one positive thing to say about him. Could they not? The, um, the, the warmest thing came from uh, Tiffany Trump. Oh, sorry, I think it was Ivanka who said that uh, whenever she called her father, he always took the call. Yeah. I have three kids. I don't think you get points for taking their call. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, there's an American comedian called Chris Rock. I don't know if he's a big deal in the UK, but we've, uh, we've heard he of him. Yeah, yeah that, about things you're supposed to do. That's just something you're supposed to do. Yeah. You don't get credit for it. <laughs> I, I suppose what the, it's very sounds very sensible to sort of say we we need to be very alert to the dangers of kleptocracy or autocracy 
uh, but we can't quite say it yet. The trouble is, though, if you're sort of permanently on guard for these things, do you think you overreact? For instance, yesterday, the Sweden gaffe, which was an amusing gaffe, but I sort of got the reaction on social media, actually in some articles already, that this sort of shows his the unprecedented danger he poses to the free world. But of course, you know, George Bush made terrible gaffes all the time, Joe Biden made loads, even Obama made sort of silly gaffes. Is there a danger that we are overreacting to Trump? No, we are underreacting. Yeah. Because the, first, when you say there are, there's a danger of these things, mm. I'm sorry, these, these things have happened. They're, these are not possibilities for the future. It, it, had, it is already a fact. It is now a fact of 18 months standing that Donald Trump said he might or might not honor the NATO treaty if he were president of the United States. Yes. You say that, you can't unsay that. Yes. You, you can't introduce uncertainty into what was a certainty for half a century. Well, I, I take that point, but he hasn't said it since being president. It, you only need to say it once. Yeah. You only need to say it once. But I mean, as a journalist who said many things over your, there must have been things you said that you regret. I was not aspiring for the for the presidency. Uh, right to control the nuclear armed forces yes. that could end organized human life on this planet. I can give you many more examples. Look, we all, it, it has already happened that Donald Trump is giving privileged access to the White House to business partners. It is already happening that he is using the prestige of his office to sell condos in Uruguay and golf courses in Abu Dhabi. Yes. Um, it's already happening that he is running the least transparent and least ethical administration, at least since Watergate. Yes. It, it's already happening that we have he, we have no idea how much richer today he is than he was when he won the election because we have no access to any meaningful disclosure of his finances. Mm. And when you say things like um, the Sweden gaffe, yeah, look, presidents make gaffes. Mm. They speak all the time. They're, what the Sweden, but the question is, what does the gaffe reveal? What the Sweden gaffe reveals is that Donald Trump is not taking information from the entire National Security Council system yeah. that existed and formed the president. Sweet, as readers of The Spectator well know, Sweden does indeed have very serious problems in degrading migrants. Yes. And there has been a deterioration of the security situation in Sweden as a result. That, that's true, and it's welcome to say it, mm. or it's certainly welcome to act on the basis of it, even if you don't say it. But Donald Trump isn't talking to the Swedish experts at the NSC. He's watching inflammatory propaganda on Fox News that originates in many cases directly with Russia's false news creation system that exists to destroy liberal parties and centrist parties in Western Europe, wreck the EU, wreck the NATO alliance, and poison the minds of viewers against their lawful governments. Yes. And that's going into his brain instead of, hey, I want to know about Sweden, send over the CIA, you know, have my, the guy who gives me the presidential daily brief, which Donald Trump does not attend, I want a Swedish section tomorrow morning. Yes. Tell me what you know. They know a lot. Yes. Perhaps perhaps we could talk a bit about Fox News, actually, because for a British listener, I think they probably assume sort of Fox News is obviously right wing and therefore sports Trump. But the relationship's a bit more complicated than that. Could you could you sort of give us an overview of where Trump is with Fox now and where he's been before? Well, that's a very interesting question. Fox News as an institution has been impelled over most of its lifetime by since it was created in 1996 by two imperatives. One is the commercial imperative of selling advertising by inflaming the fears of its older audience. Um, the other, of course, they do have a political agenda. And heading into uh, the 2016 cycle, conscious that Republicans had lost an election in 2012, that people at Fox believed had been winnable, that uh, Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch had the idea of using their network to promote the most, a more winnable Republican candidate. Mm. So in the beginning, of the, uh, that while well, Fox gave a lot of attention to Donald Trump because he was quite poppy, 
there was a there, there was a widely reported mood within Fox that they wanted to support a more electable candidate, and the result was that Donald Trump in the candidate events, although he got good uh, good publicity on television, got, he, at the candidate events he got some pretty scorching questions. Mm. He bested them. He broke them to his will. He drove one of the star at Fox News, who had been considered the future of the network, Megyn Kelly, who had asked him the tough questions. He drove her away from. Out of, out of the lineup entirely. And Megyn Kelly had a big show at nine o'clock and that has now been replaced by a new face, male this time. So it's now an all male lineup in prime time, prime time of a host who is an abject Trump supporter. He broke Fox to his will the same way that he broke the Republican Party to his will. And is that one of the- Tucker Carlson we're talking about? Is that the- Yes. Yeah. Is he definitely, he's definitely an abject Trump supporter? Well, he plays one on TV. And Tucker is a very yeah. intelligent person, but he also is a very shrewd person. And he, under, and he is someone who he goes where the audience is. Mm. I don't think he is very. I mean, I, I don't want to put this in a way that's unfair. If the audience's mind were to change, the coverage on Tucker's show would change, of course. But for now, yes, he he is uh, emulating Sean Hannity and the other most enthusiastic pro-Trump talkers. Right. Yeah. And and working on fears and broadcasting fa- false news. Some of it ultimately of Russian derivation. So where does that leave Fox? Because, I mean, Fox is still the voice of the Republican Party in the media, really. But then is it also... It's more than that. It's a disciplinary mechanism on the Republican caucus in Congress. Yes. Many of those members see what Trump is, especially in foreign policy. And many of those members think he's a disaster and are afraid of him, Mm. afraid of what he'll do. But they're also afraid of their constituents because what Donald Trump exposed, and the last major article I wrote for the Atlantic about him, which was in the beginning of 2016, made the point, what he exposed was how disconnected the Republican leadership had become from the Republican rank and file. Yes. That exposure has, again, broken the Republican leadership and the Republican caucuses in House and Senate to his will. So he rules them. He is not in coalition with them. In fact, there's, it's a hostile partnership. So long as he remains strong, he will have the upper hand. But that was, in, sorry to interrupt, that was on the immigration, really, where Trump has shown how disconnected the Republican Party was from the people. And then, yet on Fox, we know that sort of Murdoch has, Murdoch media has always been quite pro-immigration, is it not? Right. So, yes, yeah, so, uh, it's, but it's not only immigration. Mm. That, that's true. That's a place where, you know, Sean, on, after election night on 2012, Sean Hannity, who would emerge as the most abject uh, Trump voice on Fox, was saying, okay, he's now ready to sign up for the John McCain immigration amnesty bill because he was persuaded by Rupert Murdoch. Murdoch, Murdoch tweeted out his support for such a thing. Yeah. But that's not, that was not the only disparity. The larger problem was that the Republican Party was committed to a budget-cutting, tax-cutting, deregulating agenda, mm. that the, the core economic message for the party was disconnected from its base. Look, the to put it in the simplest terms, all the developed countries are struggling with the consequences of this new global economy, both the trade consequences, the migration consequences, the increasing rewards to unique skills, the increasing returns to capital, and the decreasing returns to just the typical person's ability to, to work. And that's true everywhere. And we are sorting out everywhere between people who are winners from globalization, including migrants who get to move from place to place, and losers from globalization. Mm. In the Republican Party, you have a party that is committed or was committed to an agenda that totally served the interests of the winners from globalization, radical austerity and big tax cuts and free markets and free mobility of labor, supported overwhelmingly by the votes of people who are the losers. Yeah. And, and I, I, I joke, this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but basically what you had 
was the ideology of Ayn Rand, supported by the votes of the voters of the French Communist Party. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was an unstable com combination. And Trump understood that the, that the voters are a more enduring and powerful fact than the ideology. And so he just dispensed with it. Yes. And I mean, I remember after Obama's election, you set up the New Majority website. And that was a sort of, I think you were trying to sort of alert the Republican Party to the toxicity yeah. of its current... I've been saying this since two, 2007. Yeah. To put it in its crudest form, Republicans should be, should be offering more health care coverage and less immigration. But why has the Republican Party struggled to find a candidate that would do that, or because of its insistence on this holy trinity that wasn't working? I think partly, first is, no question, I think the flow of money from donors. Mm. Second, the, the, the ideology has become ossified, and it's become a, a, an, an existent fact that it's very hard. Members of Congress, members of Congress tend to, politi elected politicians follow ide ideas that are crafted for them by others. These ideas exist and they're sort of, they're pursuing them. The enforcement mechanism of Fox, mm. which created, uh, which holds, presents people with unreliable and inaccurate information yes. that then makes it hard for them to make their own independent decisions. I think one other thing that my recommendations, re Republicans have, have succumbed to methodological radicalism. Their tactics are radical. Mm. So to say, here are some things you can do that would make life better for your supporters. They're in a mood where they, their supporters say, we want you to burn the system down. Yeah. So you, you, so you could have, you could have gone to president Obama with 99 demands to change the draft of, of the affordable care act yeah. and achieved 98 of them. But if he had not also resigned his office and apologized for seeking it in the first place. Mm. It would have been presented on Fox as a tremendous defeat. Yeah. And, no, and, and knowing that, you couldn't do business because there would be no achievable victory, however big in real-world terms, would ever be presented to your followers as anything other than abject sell and surrender. Yeah. So when you move into the Trump successful Trump nomination and presidency, do you see the conservative movement sort of now is eating, eating itself? It's eaten. It's, it's gone. I don't, it's gone. I, I don't think it's me. And what's replacing it is most likely kleptocracy. Well, what's replacing the movement is the same kind of authoritarian populist nationalism that is spreading across the developed world. Yes. That's what, I mean, we, we had a little demonstration of this just, just this past few days with the um, hullabaloo over the invitation of Milo Yiannopoulos to speak at um, the Conservative Political Action Con Congress. Yes. Uh, this, is, this is a conference that's gone on since the 1970s. It's a big jamboree that brings 10,000 activists to Washington. And, and frankly, it's been a pretty, com it's been a circus for a long time. Yeah, I went to it a couple of times. I remember it being a circus. Yeah. Well, right. It, it, it's not a high nutritional content yeah. event. And, and, it's all, and, and it's had lots of room for some pretty wacky people mm. in the past. Um, and uh, so it represents conservatism at its worst, not, not its best. But with the invitation to Milo, which I think probably will now fall apart given the latest reminders, not revelations, because these things were all known about his anti-Semitism and his advocation of, of child rape, yeah. um, was it just showed there is no core here anymore. Yes. Where you've got a movement here that still thinks it's utterly a heinous violation of individual privacy um, to say that if you have a wedding hall and you rent out your hall to the public, mm. you should have to take gay customers on the same terms as straight customers. That's an outrageous violation of liberty. Yeah. Meanwhile, <laughs> but the state... <laughs> can go to somebody who is expressing gratitude for the priest who raped him when he was 14. Yeah. 
So you don't believe the things you say you believe. And it's now just obvious that you do not believe the things you say you believe. There's no pretense that you believe. Remember when we peached Bill Clinton? Yes. For lying about you know, sex in the Oval Office? I mean, Donald Trump is this confessed sexual, serial sexual assailant. And uh, I mean, literally the same people yes. who were outraged by Bill Clinton. I suppose the worry is if, if Donald Trump is holding a mirror up to the world, that there's nobody in the world really who looks that good because there's a lot of... Oh, that's not A lot of people look good. I mean, what, what, what has been happening is we've been seeing um, on the Republican side a lot of people taking some risks with their careers to speak up. Yeah. And what I've also been both heartened by and amused by is to see that many of my liberal and Democratic friends are suddenly discovering the truth of what... Can, you know, the foreign policy conservatives have been saying about the dangers of Putin, the importance of the Atlantic Alliance, the value of intelligence agencies. You know, uh, some of us have been fighting the hard fight to defend the CIA and the National Security Agency through the years of the Snowden and um, Manning revelations. And there were, there were a lot of people who, you know, were sympathetic to those folks. And I'm glad to welcome uh, those people back to understanding why democracies need to be defended and not just against armed force but also against uh, intelligence penetration so is it, so the last question now is, is your thing you're optimistic about the trump presidency would it be that america will sort of reject trumpism and that will show that it still works i, I i'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic because i think those those terms invite us to have more predestination and predetermination what was going to happen yeah. this is a very plastic moment and what happens next is up to each of us and that's true but also inside the European continent, we are all in this together because we're all dealing through our different political systems with the same impulses. So my mood is neither optimistic nor pessimistic. It's urgent. Mm. We have to act. And whether either of those moods is justified is determined by, by what we do. So don't, for Americans in particular, there's a tendency to uh, believe everything will be fine. Systems lasted 229 years. It'll keep going. And that, I mean, that assumption is the greatest threat we have right now because systems fail. Yes. Sooner or later, the Amer- someday, the American, there won't be an American Republic anymore. And we don't know how or when or why, but it could be now. It might not be for another 100 years. It might not be enough for another 200 years, but it could be now. And if we just say everything will be fine, don't worry, the checks and balances, which are just a metaphor, will bite. And the fact that Donald Trump is every day doing something to strike at the public integrity of institutions, discredit the regular government, is opening the state up to penetration by hostile foreign agencies. That he has, we don't know the details of his relationship with Russia, but we know enough to believe it is improper and, and we know enough to believe that it is, to be aware that it is dangerous. This is do, do, one of the- Sorry, to, I don't want to get too into it, but do we know enough to know that it is dangerous? I, I'll invite you, everybody, to read the latest surveys. Donald Trump, uh, there's a story broken this weekend. And this is one of the things that when Donald Trump was so angry about the press, he knew that this was the story that was coming, mm. um, where the New York Times uh, broke the story of how Donald Trump has been negotiating with Russia over a, a betrayal of the Ukraine via a man named Felix Satter, who is a Russian-American gangster who channeled improper and probably illegal money into Trump uh, projects in New York at a time when Trump was absolutely gaspingly desperate. Yeah. And uh, so that, yeah, uh, he's got an organized crime figure who served time in prison, who was wanted by the FBI, as, as, acting as his emissary to Vladimir Putin. Yeah. That's dangerous. That does sound dangerous, yes. <laughs> David, thank you very much indeed for joining us, and I do hope we'll get you on again at some point. Thank you very much. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast anytime on iTunes, so please do. 